want you to think back to about two years ago when this virus began and what you felt when the world suddenly changed. I, I can remember vividly sitting over there one day early on and just being astonished as I thought about the fact that the airport had closed, that borders had closed, that sports leagues that I'd followed were over, completely over, that the world had just suddenly changed and stopped. And I remember thinking and feeling the weight of the sovereignty of God in a way that I had not felt it in my life before, as God had clearly and unexpectedly changed the world's plans and brought the world seemingly to a stop. The whole world uniquely had this opportunity to see we are not the masters of our fate. If God is God, can he surprise you? If God is God, can he act in ways that you don't expect? This morning, we're going back to the book of Genesis. It's a book that I've dipped in and out of for some years now. And this morning, we're coming to Isaac's story in Genesis chapter 25. So this is the very first book of the scriptures. And I want to read this passage first to us, then I want to set some context for it. And then I want to walk through it and apply it to our lives. So Genesis 25, specifically verses 19 through 34. 19 through 34, this is the word of the Lord. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, and all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. 
The main point of this passage, very simply, God sovereignly accomplishes his salvation in unexpected ways. God sovereignly accomplishes his salvation in unexpected ways. Trust him. Trust him. Just some context for Genesis. This is one big book with a number of smaller books inside of it. And all of these smaller books begin with this marker, these are the generations of. So in Genesis 2-4, we read these are the generations of, and it's the story of the world's first people, Adam and Eve. And then we get the generations of Adam uh, in chapter 5, and then the generations of Noah and his story in chapter 6, verse 9, and then the generations of, of Terah, that's Abraham's father, that's at the end of chapter 11. And the book spins, which we did a year and a half or two years ago, about 12 chapters telling the story of Abraham. After God created the world, sin enters the world, and God in his grace, he chooses Eve to be back on his side. Remember, she'd taken the side of the snake. God gives them grace. Once the first couple sinned, God never owed them grace. Grace is never an obligation. They deserve judgment. But God put enmity where there was once an alliance between Eve and the serpent. And God promised that the seed, the offspring of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent. And Genesis is a book that's tracing the outworking of this conflict between the offspring, the seed of the woman, and the offspring, the seed of the serpent. And again and again, it looks like the offspring of the serpent will crush the offspring of the woman. But God, who makes promises, keeps them. And Genesis teaches us power and the sovereignty of God to do all of this in very unexpected ways. And this text we come to the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. But it's largely the story of Jacob and Esau. Now, we already, at this point, know a number of things about Isaac. We know he's the miracle child of Sarah, born when her womb was barren by the power of God. We know that Isaac followed his father to that mountain where Isaac laid on an altar to be sacrificed. God miraculously provided a ram. We know that God sovereignly, remarkably provided a wife for Isaac, Rebekah. And when we come to this story, again, the narrative emphasizes Abraham. I mean, Isaac is Abraham's son. Isaac, not Ishmael, is the son of promise. He's the one through whom the messianic line is continuing. Ishmael was born by human power, human wisdom to Hagar. Isaac was born to barren Sarah by the power and the wisdom of God. And we learn in verse 20, Isaac was 40 years old when Rebekah becomes his wife. And Rebekah was the daughter of Bethuel, the sister of, of Laban. They were Arameans. 
point is that Abraham, by faith, sought a wife for Isaac, not among the Canaanites. He did that so that the line of promise would not be corrupted by those who worship foreign gods, but that he would have a wife from his own family. But it wasn't just enough for Isaac to have a wife. The deck was stacked against that. They also had to conceive and have a son. And notice, we don't just read that Rebekah conceived. We learn, look at verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Once again in Genesis, a barren womb. And Rebekah conceives as a result of the Lord granting Isaac's prayer. So there was a struggle in prayer, verse 21. Then there's a struggle in the womb. In verse 22, the children struggled within Rebekah. Don't overlook that. The, the sense of this is it was violent, literally smashing themselves against each other. Uh, this pregnancy must have been horrific. She despairs in pain. She goes to the Lord and asks why, and the Lord says, in prophetic word in verse 23, two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you shall be divided, the one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Ultimately, it proves true. She gives birth to twins. The first, verse 25, is red and hairy Esau. His name means hairy. The second, the younger, verse 26, comes out, he's, he's grasping for his brother's heel. So his name is Jacob. This is a Hebrew idiom uh, to grasp someone's heel for deceiver. So the struggle in the womb continues all the way to their birth. He's grasping his heel. We can assume that this boy will be a deceiver in his life. What do we learn about the boys? They grow older. Esau's a man of the field. He's a skillful Hunter, verse 27, Jacob's quiet. He lives in the home. So common with siblings, they're different. Different personalities, different interests. And notice that their parents related to them differently. Verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because, at least in part, he loved Esau's food. Tells us something's coming. Rebecca loved Jacob. The parents love for food and their different ways for their children will affect this story as it moves forward. Then suddenly in verse 29, this zooming in, this critical event, it's connected to the details we got about them in verse 27. Jacob was cooking stew. Esau comes home exhausted. Esau wants some of the stew, the red stew. Edom there just means red Jacob, the deceiver, knows how to manipulate. He demands, Esau, sell me your birthright. In verse 32, Esau is hungry. He thinks he's going to die. He reasons the birthright's of no use to him. Jacob, verse 33, he senses weakness, and he urges Esau, swear to me. And Esau swears. He sells his birthright. Verse 34, Jacob gives him the bread and lentil stew. He saw eats, drinks, and he goes away. Thus he despised his birthright. Well, that's the story. Story some of you know well. What do we learn from this story? Four things I want us to learn from this story. Number one, God keeps his promises. 
God keeps his promises. The reason we have this story is because God keeps promises. He made them and he keeps them. Did God owe a sinful world promises? No. Did God owe this sinful world good promises? Certainly not. God, out of his goodness, promised to raise up an offspring to crush the head of the serpent, to bless the world through Abraham. And God promised Abraham's wife, Sarah, in Genesis 17, not just improbably, you'll have a son, but from your womb will come nations and kings. And notice what we learn about Rebekah's womb in verse 23. Two nations in your womb. The twin boys represent much more than themselves. Against all human impossibilities, God reveals himself as a promise keeper. Now, don't take that for granted that God makes good promises and he keeps his good promises. What's the promise here he's keeping? That he will sustain this line against all human impossibilities to bring about the Messiah, the birth of the Christ. And he's doing it supernaturally. He wants there to be no confusion about whose power is bringing this about. Rebecca is just like her mother-in-law. She's barren. Again and again in Genesis, barren wombs are no match for the sovereign God. And ultimately, a virgin womb will be no match for the sovereign God. So the reason this refrain is in Genesis, these are the generations of, is because God has the power to make and keep promises. God has the power to move events along to his destined purposes and plans. What is one of the fundamental purposes of God making and keeping promises? That despite whatever it is we see in the world, we might rely on him and trust him with our very lives. Isn't that what much of the conflict in Genesis is about? Whose word will the people trust? Whose promises will they live by? God's or what they see in this world? God or what you see in the world? Two nations are in the womb because God is keeping his promises. And don't fail to see that God is not overlooking the tiniest details to keep them. Here is God, hundreds of years after Adam and Eve, working in this unnoticed, unseen place, the womb. He will not forget. He did not forget. Amazing God works in this way. The world isn't noticing or seeing God meant for his people to see from these early accounts, nothing keeps God from keeping his promises. He means for you to see that. Have you considered what promises your life demonstrates you believe? All of us are living our lives based on promises we believe. 
this world promises us, it's going to go on forever. It promises us the strong win. It promises us money is worth giving your life away to get. This world ignores. It refutes the promises of God. What promises are you building your life on? This past week, this next week, you must work hard to bring to your mind the promises of God. Do that by remembering Rebecca's Rebecca's barren, dead, empty womb. And remember, God brought life there because he keeps promises. Remember also, God's promises are all in view of God's great salvation. When God's son would unexpectedly march not to a throne, but to the cross. God was making and keeping promises because he was moving history to the cross. What promises have more power than God's promises? Think about your own life. Is is there an area of sin right now that is making promises to you that you believe is better than God's promises? Why is that? What about what you worry about or you fear or you're not content or grateful about? Does that have greater weight to you than the promises of God in Jesus Christ? Now think about what those things are, identify them, and then this week, hold them up to the promises of God and let their weight collapse underneath them. God means for you to delight in the big promises he's, he's made. He means for you to trust him for them, and then he means you to act on them. Charles Spurgeon rightly said, in the same way that the sun never grows weary of shining, it's God's nature to keep his promises. Therefore, go immediately to his throne and say, do as you promised. God makes promises that we might rely on them, we might live in view of them, and that we might ask him to bring them about. The narrator of this story is not interested at all in telling us about Rebecca's action to the news that she was pregnant or what God was doing in her womb. Can you imagine how amazed she must have been? She would have known Isaac's birth story, and now there's this miraculous birth story in her own life. What's the Lord doing? He's giving his people such obvious accounts of his power in weakness that we might trust him in the impossible moments of our lives, that we might be confident our God is committed to keeping his promises. Let God's promise-keeping power scream in your ear this next week so that the promises of this world whisper. God keeps his promises. Number two, God sovereignly elects. God sovereignly elects. It's one of the most visible themes in Genesis. This birth narrative is one of the most obvious places of this truth. Uh, A number of you will know that in the ancient world, especially the firstborn had 
special privileges because of that position. But here's God doing what is humanly unexpected. Paul says it so clearly. We read it in Romans 9. Before the twins are born, before they've done anything good or bad, God declares, verse 23, the older shall serve the younger. So what's God done here? He's elected. He's chosen Jacob over Esau. He has defied human expectations to make clear that salvation, if there will be in a salvation at all, will be of him. Why did God do this? Because he saw something in Jacob. No, because he knew Jacob would do something to deserve this. No, he did it because he's God. He has that right. He has that power. God did no grace to anyone once sin entered the world. Grace by its nature is not owed. It's a gift. And so for God to choose any person in this way is grace, undeserved. God is exercising his prerogative as God. And it's, it's all too easy to think that God is like us arbitrary, where he shows partiality, because that's the way we are, but not God. His purposes and his sovereign work in election is bound up in his character. He's all wise. He's all good. He's all loving. In God, there is no darkness at all. My earliest memories in my own life of being chosen was when I played American football at recess in my elementary school. Uh, maybe this horrific scene plays out in your mind. There would be two captains. They would take turns choosing teams, and it was all based on merit. Best guy first, it went down from there. There's no shame in being chosen last. None. I'll make that clear. In theater, how is the cast chosen? Merit. West Side Story's out. I was reading about it this week. The lead character, Maria, auditioned against 30,000 people to get the role. You don't have it, you get cut, or you get the smaller role. And there's no shame in being given the smaller role, right? The other side of that is true as well. We make choices. Restaurants, clothes, houses, cars, pizza toppings, dessert, I do an Atisalat called me this week. They both assured me they had a plan they would tailor just to me, just for me. We are immersed in a world in which we are chosen by our merit and we choose based on merit and desires. And we start to think that's what God is like. But we must let God tell us what he's like, how he works, even when it shocks us, even when it upends what we expect. The fact that God chose the younger over the older would have shocked the sensibilities of the ancient world. The fact that God is a great king who chooses whom he wills shocks the sensibilities of the modern world. God chose Jacob, not Esau, when neither Jacob nor Esau had anything to offer God. Neither neither of them had done good. Neither of them had committed an obvious sin that would disqualify them. This is not like the playground. He chose not because he saw something good or evil. His choosing is bound up mysteriously in his goodness and his mercy. And what that means is grace really is undeserved, 
and it's free. The struggle that these twins knew in their womb leads to their lives and ultimately to their two lines, Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom, two nations, two peoples. It would always seem like the godly line would be crushed by the line of the serpent. The the line of the flesh would crush the line brought about by the Spirit. But nothing stops God's purposes in grace. So why did God love Jacob? Because he loved him. Why will he stay committed to Jacob even when Jacob sins? Because he chooses him and loves him. God's people will be confronted with this throughout their history, with the reality that before the twins were born, before they've done good or bad, God chooses Jacob. God acts freely. God acts unexpectedly. Just like for you. You know, when you were born physically, you were born. You didn't have any idea what all went into your physical birth. Moreover, you didn't have anything to do with your physical birth. So it is spiritually. We are saved spiritually. We can look back and see God brought me from death to life. My spiritual life, if I have any, is of God, not of me. He gives the grace to repent and believe in Christ. And so we can say he loves me because he loves me. I I want you to have a fresh astonishment of the miracle of your salvation. God's love for you in Christ, Christian, is based completely in God, not in you. And why is that good news? Because it means that when you've had your best week or your worst week, God's love for you, his commitment to you, has not changed. God is not a he loves me, he loves me not kind of God. His love for you in Christ is realistic. What surprises you about yourself doesn't surprise God. It's as you know the unbreakable love of God in Christ for you, you know the freeness and the joy and the power to serve him and to obey him, resisting sin and living by faith. God's election apart from your work assures each of us in our ups and downs of faith. And it's this prior undeserved love for you in Christ that anchors you in your valleys and sustains you in long-term Christian discipleship. When you understand this rightly, you will not be passive. Election in Scripture always means great responsibilities because it brings with it great privileges. Does it cause us to wrestle? Of course. Yes, But if God is God, shouldn't he be able to reveal truth to us that really causes us to wrestle? He's three in one. God's son is fully God and fully man. God elects. We're responsible. Think on this. Allow this to fill your soul with the knowledge of God's unbreakable love. And then out of that, Go live for his glory, faithfully, long-term, denying yourself and taking up your cross. God sovereignly declared that in Rebekah's womb, the older will serve the younger. He doesn't defend himself, just declares it. 
all by grace. God sovereignly elects. Number three, human actions matter. Human actions matter. Here's one of those texts where sovereignty is at the forefront and human action and responsibility are right there. Verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord because Rebekah is barren. He's not passive. He doesn't reason, well, God made promises to my father Abraham. I don't have to do anything. It was because God had made promises that Isaac prays. He's pleading with the Lord, do as you promised. Again, this is what prayer is. Gary Miller, a teacher, says this so well. Prayer throughout the Bible is to be primarily understood as asking God to come through on what you've already promised. Isaac prays in this way, and the Lord answers his prayer. So the Lord who ordains means also ends also ordains means. And I want you to notice this detail that you, you might have missed. Verse 20, Isaac is 40 when Rebekah's his wife, and verse 21, prays for her to conceive. How old do we learn, though, Isaac is when the twins are born? Look at verse 26. He's 60. God made Isaac wait. And think about what Isaac did not do, like his father Abraham. He didn't go get a concubine and have a child by her. By faith, he prays. He wrestles in prayer. He waits. God is not constrained by our timetables. God ordered Isaac's life such that he has to persist in prayer, be patient in prayer, and God used all of that mightily. So very specifically, brothers and sisters, pray. Be persistent in prayer. God's promises, what he's revealed about what he will do, should motivate you to pray. Two ways to do this, very practically. Use the Joshua Project. It's a website that allows you to systematically pray through people groups in the world. They'll even send you an email a day if you want that. And there's a website called Operation World, which helps you pray through the nations of the world. That's what we use to pray each week here throughout the year. God promises to act in response to our prayers. And so we pray. Who else acts in faith? Rebecca. I mean, this pregnancy is one of pain and conflict, and it drives her to despair. She is crying in verse 22. Why is this happening to me? It's terrible. And she goes to the Lord, which probably meant she went to a prophet or maybe a patriarchal altar. And she seeks the Lord through the means the Lord had given her in this struggle. What does Rebecca not do? She does not resort to complaining about God. She cries out to God in her despair, her weakness. What a model. And God answers. All right, kids, I want you to think about when your mom and dad, if you've learned to swim, taught you to swim, and they wanted you to do, or maybe they wanted you to do something you were afraid of doing. Most likely what they were saying was, trust me. Just trust me. Whatever it is, that water or, or maybe being alone in the dark, they're just saying, trust me. You can act because you know me. Trust me. 
They wanted you to jump to them in the pool or try something you'd not done before. Their person, their presence was meant to be enough for you. Much more so with God. God makes promises and he's compelling us to act. He's saying, trust me. That's the reason we risk. It's the reason we pray. It's the reason we're faithful. It's the reason you'll say no to sin next week because you trust the Lord. Isaac, who saw his own life spared from that sacrifice on Mount Moriah, is not passive. He acts. Rebecca is not passive. She acts, and we must act. What do you, do, what do you need to do next week? When the next months faithfully in view of who God is and his promises, maybe there's a sin you need to take action to fight. Or maybe there's risk you need to take with some people that you know in sharing the gospel or speaking of Christ. Or maybe in your own life, you know there's habits of growth that you need to discipline yourself for. It's different for each of us, but we need to wrestle with this. Human action matters. Notice also this story of Jacob and Esau. Both had to have understood what the Lord had revealed to uh, Rebekah before they were born. But then notice in verse 29, the reality, verse 29, that the older will serve the younger has not come to pass yet. So what does Jacob do? He manipulates Esau in this moment of weakness. Esau had to know the importance of being the firstborn, the fact that the true God had literally told his grandfather, I'm going to bless the world through your family. Esau's flippant about his birthright. He sells it for one lunch. Their actions, even their evil ones, matter. The narrator doesn't comment on the events, just reports them, but Hebrews 12 does. Hebrews 12 calls Esau unholy because he sold his birthright for a single meal. It was a way of warning God's people, don't turn back in view of what is temporarily difficult. Your actions matter. The scriptures do not present our world as fatalistic in which we are passive, but what we do has eternal weight. So, Plot and plod for God's glory. Consider how God has plotted and plotted. Took actions to save. His son set his face to go to Jerusalem. God's son worked to die on the cross. He does not save us because of our works, but he does save us to work. From Isaac's prayer to this hard pregnancy, this account encourages us to persevere in faith in following the Lord. What does the Lord use? Very ordinary human faithfulness to accomplish extraordinary ends. Human action matters. And finally, sin will never stop God, ever. Sin will never stop God. It's so striking when you read the accounts in Genesis how sinful they are. It's never hidden. Isaac and Rebekah, they're commendable. They're not perfect. What do we read in verse 28? Isaac loved Esau. Rebekah loved Jacob. 
they showed favoritism. And Isaac loved and showed partiality to the one that God had made clear was not the one he had chosen. The line goes through Jacob, not Esau. I don't know that Isaac wanted to submit to the Lord in this. Did their sin stop God? No. And then we get this account, Jacob and Esau in the stew. Esau is hungry. He wants some of that red stew. Red stew indicates that Esau assumed that the stew was was meaty. Instead of kindly just serving his brother some lunch, Jacob, it seems premeditated, demands, sell me your birthright. Esau has no spiritual sight. He just sells it. What does Jacob give Esau? Bread and lentil stew. There's no meat. It's not the red, meaty stew Esau thought it was. That Jacob, did he make it seem to be that as a deceiver? I don't know. I think consistent with what we've just been told about Jacob, he's a deceiver. And he deceived his brother. The text is brief. It just says Esau ate, drank, rose, went his way. There's no conversation. There's no warmth. Esau despises his birthright. Esau despised Jacob. They both sinned. Jacob, a deceiver, he's going to deceive again. Esau despised. He thought nothing of what he should have treasured with his life. But here in the midst of all of this, God sovereignly does no evil. His purposes and his plans are prevailing. The older will eventually serve the younger. God is bringing this about. God is teaching his people from their earliest days, human sin, which human beings commit and are responsible for, does not stop God. Not in the garden, not when Abraham lied and abandoned his wife, not with Isaac and Rebekah showing partiality, not at the cross. The greatest act of evil that the world has ever committed in God's sovereign plan results in the greatest good. From the beginning, here is God preparing his people for the cross. From Judas to Pilate to the crowd, each of them in their different ways sinned. But did it stop God? No. God accomplished his salvation there. Very God that you and I have sinned against very boldly with our lives the God we've taken glory from, the God we've not loved as we're meant to love, what's God done? Patiently, powerfully worked to save rebels. This struggle in Rebecca's womb leads to a greater struggle for God's own son. The son comes into the world. He struggles perfectly against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and he wins. And his victory is not just for himself, it's for others. How does he do this? He lives a life that represents others, just like Adam did in the garden. He was killed. He died a death for others. He substituted himself for others. And then he's raised from the dead as a vindication to the world that what he said was true and to publicly demonstrate he had accomplished salvation on the cross. Beginning with barren Sarah, with a barren womb, God was ultimately working for a much 
greater glory, an empty tomb. Sin can't stop God, but neither can death. Death. God worked for centuries to prepare the world for the cross. If you're not trusting in Christ, God is being patient with you even this morning. Where are you looking for salvation? Will it save you? Christ promises to save you. Come to Christ. Repent. Believe in. Believe on. Receive Christ. Find life in his name. This story is so well known by many of you. But do you see afresh how God has the right and does work unexpectedly? Can God surprise you? Can you trust him as you come to know more of his ways, unexpected as they are, and his, his character? After all, the most unexpected thing God has done is his own son comes into the world and goes to the cross. What actions will you take in view of the fact that God makes and keeps his promises? God gives life to barren wounds and barren souls. He loves us because he loves us. And so he will not stop loving us. And as we know that and, and rest in that, that we're then free to give our lives away for great and small obediences and to live our lives for the glory of his name.